0: week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the writers, directors, actors, producers, costumers, composers, production designers, editors, uh, sound editors, film editors, you name it, and we talk to them. Got a fun, a fun show for you today. Oh, and of course, I always I generally forget to do this, and I've had a couple publicists remind me. You can find if you're not tuning in live, you're catching us on a podcast somewhere, we are live every Monday, eleven AM Pacific, two PM Eastern Time, right here on adrenalineradio.com. Uh the radio station where traditional radio ends. Uh, and and Pam's nodding her head in there. my wonderful sound engineer Pam and you can always find the show on all the different uh, podcast platforms after our live airing generally by Tuesday uh, we're up on Apple, we're up on iTunes Stitcher, Podbean, the whole the whole gamut And then you can find more movie reviews and interviews on and, every archive show for Behind the Lens, seven years on BehindTheLensOnline.net. So, all right, I did the housekeeping stuff. Um, I want to give a big shout out to a dear, dear publicist who I know is listening today uh, because she's working on a film where our live guests at the midpoint of the show uh, are joining us. Hello, Emily Sharp. Uh, Emily is one of our most... Devoted listeners, uh, publicity listeners over the past seven years. So it's always a joy and a treat when we get to work with her again. Uh, So, and speaking of today's show, at the midpoint of the show, fresh off of an incredible world premiere at South by Southwest, we've got writer-director Alex Neuer and Jasmine Savoy Brown uh, with us live talking about their chilling film sound of violence one of the most unique conceptual films uh, storylines that i've seen in quite a while um and i can't wait to talk to both of them about this but before we get to that we've got an interview i always most of you know our regular listeners readers you all know my love for my roots in philly and uh That makes this film that we're going to talk about right now, Last Call, extra special. From Paolo Pilati, writer-director of Last Call, co-writer Greg Lingo. I got a chance to talk to Paolo the other day about the film. It is set in the fictional area of Darby Heights, which, if you're from Philly, you know this is based on Upper Darby. uh, One of those wonderful, small, conclave neighborhoods within Philadelphia. Uh, Paolo, he grew up in Overbrook. Greg Ling- Lingo, he grew up in Upper Darby. I think he currently lives in Wayne, uh, Pennsylvania. The film, it's a comedy. It's light, but it deals with some interesting issues, such as gentrification, which happens all over the country. Uh, and if you are from the Philly area, the New York area, um, the bigger cities... in you remember what the row houses were like, what the, the neighborhoods were like, uh, the corner bars with the apartments on top. We see a lot of that happening now with redevelopment, where towns and cities are going back to that idea of community with you know, business retail and business on restaurant and business on the bottom and residential on top. And it's really wonderful because it cre- creates a really great family feel that it's a feel that goes beyond community and this is something that paolo captures so beautifully with last call it's the story of mick a guy that yeah he moved really far he went from his wonderful you know blue collar irish neighborhood uh in the fictional darby heights aka upper darby uh and moved into center into rittenhouse square area in center city philadelphia okay i know everybody from philly Uh, and Jersey. And Charlie Parlopanidis, I know that includes you, um, is laughing right now. Because it's not that far. It's not that big a distance. Uh, And Paolo does a beautiful job of setting the stage for us, taking this lengthy ride up the Schuylkill Expressway um, as Mick heads home. There's a funeral. Um, His dad owns a bar. But he's also involved in redevelopment and real and uh, real estate. And there's a company that wants to essentially gut the old neighborhood. So it presents an interesting problem for him. Does he still fit in with his friends? Does he feel an obligation to his dad and to the neighborhood? Or is he being consumed by the idea of making money? So, we go from the fictional Darby Heights. We go down for a weekend at the Jersey Shore. What's interesting, and you'll hear Paolo talk about this, because the tax credits had exhausted for Philadelphia, he had to shoot, um, actually found Bayonne, New Jersey, which is a dead ringer for Upper Derby, which is where he wanted to shoot Um uh, So it's a really interesting story, and you're going to hear him get into it. The cast is amazing. You've got Jeremy Piven, who stars as Mick. You've got Bruce Dern as everybody's favorite old basketball coach, Finnegan, Zach McGowan, Taryn Manning, Jack McGee, Jamie Kennedy, who went to to Monsignor Bonner High School, Uh, Sherry O'Terry who is from Philly, Kathy Moriarty, Uh, Chris Kirsten uh, Kirsten, and then
1: a lot of the bar
0: patrons you see are all Delco residents. Um, Most of the crew is from the Philly area. This is very Philly-centric. So for everybody who's craving a little bit of home, um, this is the film for you. And for everybody else who remembers these kind of neighborhoods or lives in them, this is for you. It's a fun film. It's got a couple editorial problems um, where it gets a little messy and clumsy in in a couple parts. But overall, it is a pure joy and a lot of fun watching this, and especially with Jerry Piven. uh, uh, ah, I can't even talk today. Jeremy Piven leading the charge. So without any further ado, take a listen to my exclusive conversation with Paolo Pilati talking Last Call. Daddy, good morning. How are you? Well, I am thrilled to be talking with another native. Oh yeah? Awesome. <laughs> Look, any mo- any movie that takes me back down the shore is okay by me.
2: <laughs> well that that just does for sure. That, that I think so. I think I think we uh I think we hit the nail on the head with that one.
0: Oh, without a doubt. And just, the whole ambiance of this film, Paolo, is just so well done. It immediately transports you right into those neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. You know, it's, I thank you very much. I appreciate that. And, um, um, you know, for me, it's... Uh, storytelling is all about authenticity. Mm. and And I you know, I pride myself on being a very genuine person, and a lot of that's from my upbringing. I grew up in in Overbrook in West Philly, and, you know, Greg Lingo, the executive producer and co-writer, he had grown up in Upper Darby, which is the basis for Darby Heights. Right. And so I knew that world, I knew the world intimately, you know, I'm from that world, and so... Um, you know, one of the first things they teach you way back when is, you know, write what you know, and um, and this was juicy for me because I knew it, and, and coming from a working class background very proudly, um, they're the kind of stories that interest me. Most of the stuff that I work on and write and develop are working class or immigrant tales, and, and the, the story that, that I gravitate towards, you know, back with, you know, neorealism and Italian filmmaking and all that kind of stuff are stories of the poor and the working class and the struggle. And so this was, this was, for me, in that world, albeit an unapologetic, comedic look of things in that world, but um, still kind of an important working class tale to, I think, to tell, especially given, um, you know, in, in in so many parts of, of the country,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and and certainly, you know, I think it's pretty relatable, um, we don't lose our identity, you know, as a, um, for me, you know, like this, this, you know, the whole country is built on the backs of, of these mom-and-pop shops, right, these bars and these butcher shops and bakeries and, and things that make, um, neighborhoods unique and, and kind of glow, Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's really important that we, uh, especially now, because they're hurting so bad with being shut down for a year and everything. That um, you know, this kind of thing tw- turned into that, right? Turned into a kind of bit of a love letter to to the mom and pop shop.
0: It it really stuff. does. With it coming out now, Paolo, it really does. And something that I find so interesting is, for me, when I was growing up, I always loved going to my great aunt's house in in Philly and. Yeah there was a great little grocery store on the, on the corner and on top of it you know neighbors lived and you saw all of that and then that started disappearing in the yeah. 60s and 70s. And yeah. now even here in LA I'm I'm watching all this everything get built up with condos and apartments but now yeah. they're moving back towards that neighborhood feel and putting businesses on the first floors.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. In fact, uh, you know, there's a big push for that in, in most large cities of having mm-hmm. that retail, that retail space. And now, you know, it's funny, but, you know, growing up, and I grew up in a predominantly Italian-American and African-American neighborhood, um, so there was, there was you know, what what is now considered like an Italian specialty shop would have just been the corner deli yeah. growing up, right, and, mm-hmm. or whatever, and so it's a little different uh but it's still kind of the same and it's funny because the the younger generations are praying for that that specificity that individual kind of um uh you know individualized feel like i go here to get my taco shells or you know whatever it might be you know i go here to get my you know homemade you know empanadas or or you know as opposed to going to whole foods you know for all that stuff or whatever you know so it's um, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Sometimes, but it's funny how different generations come around to it. Yeah, uh, perhaps you know, being a few, you know, another generation removed from from, you know, kind of being uh, immigrants or first generation
0: or second generation Americans, you know. So yeah, yeah I, well, listen, I, I,
2: you know, I'm glad, uh, you know. Uh, thank you for those kind words. I'm glad that, that <laughs> it resonates that way with you. You never know, right? You, you do these things, especially the comedy. It, it's such a comedy, is such a fickle, you know, such a fickle thing. But I do think um, what I've learned from our cast, especially who is so, you know, so well versed in comedy. Well, and the is cast the is
0: of, is also very Philly centric, too.
2: Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah, and and yeah, that's a big uh, thing, Paolo, because I, I have found that over the years. There are people that you can plop down into a film that is, quote-unquote, Philly-centric, and they have right. no clue. Right. There's just right. something so, about...
2: I mean, part of that, part of that is is you know, the kind of the New York... And I love New York, and I spend half my time in New York City, um, but I'm a Philadelphian, and it has its own identity. Yep. But in the cinematic world it often gets gobbled up or combined into just the New York accent, the New York kind of way of life. And Philly's a very, no, you know, Philly's just a different town yeah. and um, across the board. So, you know, yeah, you're right. Jamie Kennedy, he grew up in Upper Darby, so he knew this whole world very well, was very excited to be a part of it. Sherry O'Terry had grown up in Upper Darby as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Bruce Dern, <clears throat> Bruce Dern, I didn't know this until after he was already cast, but had spent you know, went to school at the University of Pennsylvania,
0: yeah.
2: and had spent a lot of time in West Philly and Goff and Cobb's Creek, and and you know he knew he knew Philadelphia very very well, which was surprising. And then um, you know we had some regional and local actors as well that obviously you know Pete Petruccioli I grew up with and Overbrook who who played a who played um, digits in the film, and yeah, that stuff's important because you know we cast this entire film in three weeks, mm-hmm. um, and without time the schedule didn't allow for rehearsal um and so to have that shorthand um to have that shorthand is is invaluable right oh, yeah. i've never worked with this cast before so to, so for some of them to to not only get it but then help the others that may not is, is tremendous but you know yeah i yeah. think that's important to uh, you know to have the the kind of authentic flavor it's hard and, you know, it's really it travels, right? I mean, it's classic underdog, you know, Rocky, that whole thing. And, and we as Philadelphians have always embraced that. And rightfully so, because we're in the shadow of New York and all that stuff. But it's its own, it's had its real, like, it, it, it's had its moment. And it's kind of really rebounded nicely, mm-hmm. I would say, over the last decade or so. Yeah. But, you know, we're, every, we're everywhere. We're kind of like cockroaches. We're all over L.A. We're all over <laughs> the entertainment industry, you know? They're everywhere, and people are pr- will proudly, you know, rip their rip their chest open to show their tattoo of Philly. You know what I mean? Like that they'll show their Philly heart.
0: Oh yeah.
2: Um, very proud. So that's a, it's, it's, an, it's, an, it's a, it was intimidating in a sense because while I knew that world, I also know how um, both in Philly and Philadelphians and elsewhere will be scrutinizing like okay, what's going on with this accent or, you know, or, you know the little details that uh-huh. are kind of, um, that make it, you know, a potentially authentic silly story versus versus not, you know? So I was very, very aware
0: of that, for sure. Well, so talking about the, the little details is like, how do you approach this from a directorial standpoint? And how much of this did you actually shoot in Upper Darby? I know you shot a lot in Bayonne, Jersey. But how much did right. you did you shoot in Upper Darby, and where did you shoot Callahan's Bar, which is such a key element in this film?
2: Yeah, so you know, um, and this is this is you know, if you, uh, filmmaking is a very transient uh, industry, right? We go where the tax credits are, so you know, it was Philly has good it ones. Was, it was, you know, right, it was, it was Toronto and Canada and Vancouver, and then it was New Orleans and Louisiana and Atlanta. And, you know, places where the tax credits are, are robust and untapped. Unfortunately, in Pennsylvania, it's capped. And um, that's a real shame because, because not only does the state and Philly being inside of it lose a lot of production, but a project like this, which is, you know, um, written, and directed by a Philadelphian, yep. Uh, with an executive producer who lives in the main line of you know, outside of Philadelphia, you know, we had to go and shoot in North Jersey because of the tax because the Jersey tax credit was available to us, and it just would have been irresponsible for us to, to not take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. So, fortunately, um, you know, our the two producers out in New York, Ante in particular, had grown up in the Bronx and he kind of knew the feel of this the kind of feel that this neighborhood had to be. We took them down to Upper Darby and showed them there. And then he said, I got a couple of the towns for you in North Jersey and we took a um, we took a the first night in Bayonne. And I'm like this this feels good. This looks good. I think it's right. We go into this. I'll tell you a, a quick anecdote because it's, it's, it's a very silly type of tale but we go into this bar Danny Boys in, in Bayonne and it's the kind of bar that that you know, doesn't that outsiders don't go into normally, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, having grown up in West Philly and and Ante brought up in the Bronx, you know, we were, you know, we know our way around the block, let's say. But you know, I also know, and I'm like, sure about this place. Is it? Come on, let's go in. <laughs> we go in, and of course the record scratch. You know, stop. The guys are looking at us, and, and we sit down, and and it's an old like Polish American born, You know, working class guys sitting there drinking their bugs, and and. Uh, and, and my producer doesn't drink, so he orders the water. So it's like already kind of like straight one. And then I'm like, and I look over, and I'm like, we're in an Irish club, and I see a Guinness tap, so I i up with a Guinness, and I just hear the bar crack up laughing. The bartender's like, that tap, we have it. was like, hey, Tommy, how long, how long, when was the last time we had Guinness on tap here? And he was like, I don't know, like 85 or something? And I was like, oh, man, you know, and we could have gotten on a worse foot. And, um, you know, but, but we settled in, I bought the rounds you know, I bought a round of buds for the bar and, and this the kind of bar that doesn't have food. So people take bring in pizza from the pizza place across the street. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we get to talk into this big dude, this big burly dude who could like crush me with his finger if he wanted to and and uh and he's calling me skinny guy and he's like, Yeah, skinny guy, come over here, I'm a silly guy, go over here and you know, eat like the pizza and you know, within like it went from being an awkward thing to within Ten minutes, you know, we're sharing pizza and stories, and and you know, it turns out we wound up that wasn't our main bar, but we wound up shooting at that bar. That guy that I'm talking about, Staz, wound up being an extra in one of the scenes, and it just and, and at that moment I was like, this is it, this is our this is our town for sure. And then we found our Callahan's up there, which couldn't have worked out any better for us than it did. And uh, you know, we were really lucky. I mean, Bayonne was just Bayonne was the only perfect as a rep as a replication mm-hmm. of upper derby for us but but they were just so welcoming and and this proximity in new york was very helpful for us and it was tremendous it was tremendous um we, yeah we you know i wanted to shoot an upper Darby, but uh callahan's the actual pub wouldn't have worked from a logistical standpoint given how tiny it is mm-hmm. and, um well, we got really lucky with the place we did find so um one of my favorite, you
0: know, well, I was gonna, I gorgeous. was gonna say your cinematographer George Gibson. He does a really nice job at maintaining your visual tonal bandwidth and your visual construct of keeping things intimate. It is you don't have any wide wide shots here happening here. Everything, especially in the neighborhood, you go out a little yep. wider when Mick is at the Fiddler Club or something like that, which is more impersonal. And it's out in the yep. world, but you keep the camera in tighter on the neighborhood yep. and on all the people. Yep. And, you re- and you never get claustrophobic with it, which is that yep. that's so key that you don't get claustrophobic. You feel the familial connection of the neighborhood. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an interesting. I think it's a pretty
2: fairly astute observation. You know, we talked about, you know, this film's. This 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 color palette the the it's not a it's not a glossy film. No. It's a um, it's a it's a it's a grimy kind of off. You know, just a, just real. I wanted it to feel real. I didn't want it to feel like um this isn't a caricature of of a neighborhood. This isn't a um this is very much so a a working class, entire neighborhood. A, a neighborhood like Rocky, like on its last legs, but mm. still very proud and and so it was important to kind of show that world that and you hit it on the head like as close as we can get without suffocating people
0: yeah
2: you know the working title of this film was crabs in a bucket which the metaphor it's a socio-economic metaphor for, yep. for pulling people you know down uh, when they're trying to get out and and you know having grown up in the neighborhood i grew up in i was very i was very tuned into that um because of that that, that, that mentality of get ahead but don't get ahead of me, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it was very, very intentional. Um, it was very intentional, and again, in these in these pubs, typically, while they're gorgeous when you go in, they're not set up to shoot, right? No, they're not good. at all, <laughs> right? So it's hard. It's really it's difficult with angles and, and you know getting you know and working that out. But um, yeah, I mean that. The last thing I kind of say about that is you know I love. I love the two-shot, and I don't think, especially American filmmakers, use it enough. And for good reason, I think, you know, oftentimes they, just, they get their master, they get their coverage. Um, it, it, you know, but you can't hide in the two-shot, both visually and the actors. Like, no one can hide. You yeah. Know? And and um, fortunately, I had, I had players that could, you know, that were just, they were all vets. So they loved it, and and it gave them a little bit of space at times to kind of be comedic physically when I could, um, and it and it helped with, we had such a large ensemble and so many scenes with so many players that it was just a it was a practical decision mm-hmm. as well as a creative one. Um, but it worked. It worked for it worked for. Um, I think it
0: worked to tell this story, and know? and it really does serve to because you get somebody like Zach McGowan and, and Chris Kirsten in a scene, and the two of them are very physical with their comedy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Piven yeah. is Piv is more focused and centered. Um, he doesn't get as yeah. big physically right. and and take up the canvas. Yeah. He lets his his yeah, yeah. internal performance do it. So yeah, so it works really really well. You know, and I would be remiss not to ask you about your editing on this one because there is so much happening within the neighborhood itself, with what's going down with with Kelly Construction and yeah. taking us down the shore and taking the boat out. You've got Ethan Maniquist, whose work I love. He cut for, for my friend Jonathan Jakubowicz for Hands of Stone, and then just and then yeah, did a hundred days to live for Ravine Gandhi. Uh, so I'm curious about the editing process here um, because with these actors, you had to have an embarrassment of riches to have to go through.
2: Yeah, you know, it, it, well, we did, and so, and I, to take a step back before I talk, before I gush over Ethan, um, I love actors, and so, I mean, I love them, I love them so much, and and, and, um, and without having rehearsal, was such a it was such a and I love rehearsal and it's such a was a strange thing. So, you know, I had never worked with this level of talent before either. Who was just you know, Jeremy was on from from, you know, from the first take and and Bruce like just I mean just on and on and on and and so I wanted to give them, you know, their space too, right? Like I'm gonna get one take my way, you're gonna get one take your way, mm-hmm. you know, and then. We're gonna play a little bit, and Jeremy in particular loves to loves to go, uh, you know, loves to go, and so, uh, and that works for me too. It lathers him up, it gets him, it gets him going, and so we would have, um, I mean, we would, you know, at times we would just go, 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 and 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 not cut. So yeah, when we got to post, there was a lot, and you know, um, I'm a big fan, and I told Ethan before we started. was, uh dj that one producer brought to me and i had i had loved hands of stone and i i was thrilled i said the agent said listen i said this this story this story requires this neighborhood requires people talking over each other right um it's very tight these guys have known each other they can finish their each other's sentences they've, they've literally been around each other for four decades or more in the case of bruce and, and jack McGee, 80 years maybe and so mm-hmm. You know that they're very. um It might not be the easiest edit that way, and I just want to make sure you're comfortable with that. And and he was totally game for it. And and I, you know, it, I, for me especially, wanting to make this feel um, natural, you know, as natural as possible. Um, because there's nothing worse, especially in a bar film about like this kind of topic. <laughs> topics. There's nothing worse than. Uh, Jeremy talks, and then there's this unnatural pregnant pause, and then Jamie talks, and it just doesn't it's just it's the worst. And so, um, yeah, we had a lot to go with, and it was funny because you could you could, you know, you could go down um, so many different roads and and ethan, in particular, coming from the world that he comes from. He was he, you know, excels in certain in certain areas and in particular with pace and, and and some of these montages and the opening driving sequence which I really you know, we turned into a titling sequence but was really important for me to kind of like show this difference between the world where Jeremy is coming from and uh-huh. the world he's going back to and, and some of the you know, the montages, the drinking montages but just really led up the rally. And then um you know, and it all sort of worked out well. And then um, the other, you know, uh, my God, I'm drawing a blank. uh Peter, the other Pete Palomo, the other editor, kind of came in and 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 slowed some of it down in places too, which was really nice. And, mm-hmm. and you know, one of my favorite scenes between Jack and Jeremy in the workshop, um, you know, needed a little t- needed a little like I don't want to say grace, but just a little bit. You know, it's interesting because you could change. You know, you could change. You make the movie and the edit, right? So uh, you can change the tone. And then, anyway, it was a nice balance. And so again, another another lucky lucky break for me. But yeah, I love Ethan. I, I obviously spent a lot of time with him. And he came to Philly, and we we cut here. And before, that was pre pre COVID. And then the
0: rest was done remotely. But. And I have to say that opening driving uh, yeah time lapse um, title sequence that yeah. is killer. It is. Fabulous, so uh, yeah. well yeah. done. Yeah. I love it, love it. I appreciate it. that. I appreciate that. Well, yeah, it
2: was, you know, again, it was like, okay, how do we, how do we make the? It's funny because I don't, I don't really, creatively, I don't like title sequences. I like to just kind of get into the story, and I, I'm not the biggest fan personally of like, It's filmmaking is the ultimate collaboration. So I don't personally. By Paolo Pilati or or apostrophe s yes or anything like that. In this particular case, though, and where it lands in our film, it the titling sequence worked. I mean, I knew I wanted this long kind of, you know, this I don't know, elaborate, but just a, a drawn out kind of drive um back home. And so it it, it 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 served two purposes for us. But I do think it's yeah, I think it worked. I'm really I was really happy with the way it turned out. It was. Um, it was something that from very early one of the things that never changed the many rewrites of the script was this was this drive um you know kind of was this was this trip home mm-hmm. um so and yeah it was really you know it's important to understand that that this guy doesn't live this guy is basically estranged from his family yet he lives you know maybe maybe a half an hour away it's <laughs> is like basically around the corner do you know what i mean so like he just doesn't it's an interesting dynamic but it's it's also worlds away he's mentally he's worlds away from that place you know and so um and, and obviously economically as well so yeah it, it was important to kind of show that transition right and and um and again having grown up in in west philly um like i knew that world from you know i used to take the the, the and on the subway from west philly down to you know down into center city and so i knew you know i knew i you know i spent I spent half of my teens doing that and, and you know, just the, the difference in the economic changes as you went from kind of neighborhood to neighborhood, um, always told a story, you know, so I oh, was something I was, it worked really well for I'm glad we were doing this project because I wanted to kind of visualize that, you know.
0: Yeah, no, it, it works, it works well. And I've got one last question for you, Paulo, because I know Priscilla has to get you moving uh, with other people. Yes. But I've got to ask you, your first feature, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker, as a director, in making Last Call, that you can now take forward into future projects?
2: Man, that is a, uh, that's a beast. Oh, my God, everything, right? I mean, um, I had worked on, you know, maybe a dozen projects, but never my own feature, but, you know, Yep. And I've with some great actors, but not...
0: okay we're teasing you right there we're gonna break here uh, with Paolo and Pam we'll be able to back it up a little bit at the end of the show okay we're gonna back up this last question with Paolo at the end of the show because we've got our live guests we've got Alex and Jasmine ready to go here so Alex I know you're there hi there hi alex and i think uh i think we're waiting for jazz for them to bring jasmine on as well yeah or- i can go ahead and grab her for you now terrific okay so we're just waiting for we're waiting for jasmine uh for her for her people to bring her online but in the meantime welcome alex
3: thanks for having me oh uh-huh.
0: With this film? Oh, my God. I'd be a fool not to have you on the show. What <laughs> what a film. My God. Thank you. This. Uh, Thank you. It's, uh, it's a peculiar uh, little piece of madness. Um, that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, <laughs> and already you've got a distribution deal, so peop- everybody will be able to see the film. Com- if they didn't see it at South By uh, this past week, they'll be able to see it uh, May 21st. Uh, oh, that's
3: correct. Yes, we're very excited.
0: Which, that is very, very exciting. Um, but, uh, this film... Hey, Jasmine, you're on. Oh, ah, we've Alex got... Alex and Debbie. We've got Jasmine Savoy Brown. Hi, Jasmine. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. And and your fearless leader, Alex, is on the line too. Hey, Jasmine. Good morning, Alex. Hey, everybody. <laughs> happy Monday. <laughs> happy well, happy Monday after a fabulously well received reception at South Pie for Sound of Violence. Thank you. That's uh, yeah, been a pretty good
1: weekend for us.
0: Uh, d- d- <laughs> I got to tell you, um, I was just telling Alex Jasmine, this film. Number one, the whole concept blew my mind. I can just imagine what you <laughs> thought when you when you read this script. Uh, if I was, I would not be able to put it down. If if somebody handed me this <laughs> script, I would not be able to put it down especially if I were in your shoes, Jasmine, as somebody who was looking at this to play this interesting woman named Alexis.
1: Yeah, basically. I really couldn't put it down. I was like, what the hell? This is so nuts. I loved how gross and gory and (laughs) terrible the kills were so much. Um, And I loved how complex and nuanced the character was, and that they didn't shy away from all of that simply because Alexis is female.
0: Well, Alex, why don't you go ahead and give our listeners a brief synopsis of this masterful work um, so that they get an idea of what is so gory and gross. And that's a great description, Jasmine. That is a great description. (laughs) 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 Well,
3: um, it's the story of a killer who makes music through her murders. It's an artist's journey, more than a typical serial killer journey. But yes, she pushes the boundaries and follows her artistic inspiration to create elaborate um, music experiments with uh, pretty gruesome collateral damage.
0: Well, and what I find really interesting, uh, and of course Jasmine plays our... I don't know if we want to call her a heroine, a protagonist, <laughs> um, psycho nut job. I you know anything fits, but what is really striking here is that is that Alexis first and foremost in her mind is an artist, not a serial killer. One hundred percent.
3: That's correct.
0: And that is a really interesting take. Plus, something else that you do with this film, Alex, is we are actually following the killer. We are following Alex. Alexis, we're not following the victims and wondering who done it or, okay, how sneaky are they going to be? Nah, we're right there in her mind. It's fascinating.
3: Yeah, it's a shift of paradigm that is not always... um the most popular but uh but in this case because uh the story is very much about um a a cathartic journey dealing with trauma and 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 creative inspirations um i felt there was um it was more about the audience seeing what she could come up with next rather than than uh, having her victims threatened by her presence somehow. And, um, and uh, also, again, because she's an artist rather than a killer, in her mind and as well, when I wrote the script, um, I felt that the piece uh, needed to be intimate as well. Um, and finally, I would say that, especially with uh, her synesthetic abilities, we needed to be right in her world with her mm-hmm. to experience the artistic high that she uh, sees with those colors and lights.
0: Oh, it's very, this is very experiential uh, from a visual and a sonic standpoint. And I love your performance, Jasmine, as Alexis. Thank you. Because it's almost orgasmic watching uh, (laughs) (laughs) Alexis as she gets so stimulated by the sound the sounds that come with murder the various things twisting a knife or a fading Mm -hmm. heartbeat or blood as it slows or as it speeds up and becomes more and what you bring from a performance standpoint you are mesmerizing to watch and then you layer then you layer in these incredible visuals where the experiential uh, the experiential nature of what Alexis is feeling um, is seen through light and sound and color lots and lots and lots this is one acid trip I don't think anybody wants to be on uh, how, how do do you as an actor Jasmine get into that mindset to reach that level of intimate performance
1: you know uh I don't know (laughs) that's a great question no I did a lot of research and um I wanted to make sure I really understood the her background in regards to trauma and how that affects a person and so I spent a lot of time doing that research but then just every character that I play I approach with a lot of empathy and no judgment. It doesn't matter if the person's a killer or a quote unquote hero or saint. every, I just, I don't want to judge any character that I play so that I can make sure I tell their story the most truthfully. And so approaching her that way, it really wasn't hard for me to um,
0: get into that
1: place because that's just her reality.
0: Yeah. It's fascinating watching because there is actually a lot of growth within Alexis and I'm curious Alex because we first meet Alexis as a little girl she's deaf Um, which in and of itself that that brings out with this whole uh, synesthetic idea of stimulating one sensory pathway that then activates another one Uh, and it's her deafness and a trauma that that spirals uh, this thing But I'm curious how challenging it was to find a young actor who could really play, uh, you know, the young version of Alexis.
3: Well, um, very importantly, um, she, in her backstory, she lost her hearing in an accident. So first, um, we consulted with uh, specialists in the matter to know whether we should... Uh, cast a deaf actor or a hearing actor, um, and then so that was that was one important part that we needed to get right. Um, the similar way, um, loss of hearing versus being uh, born deaf, uh, are, 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 have to be addressed differently. The way they use sign language, the way um, they 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 speak, mm-hmm. um, because obviously she she lost her hearing in an accident quite later on, so she is you know, fully able to speak and, and has not lost her habits. And and her um, sign language needed to be clumsy a little bit, similarly for her mother. And Camilla uh, is a a absolutely inspiring, committed actor at the age of 10. It was Wow. When, when we ran uh, the um, audition tapes, she immediately jumped out for me because, first of all, her reading of the script and her um, and one of her re- relative had already taught her sign language, so there was a lot of a connection um, she felt with the character. And and on set as well, she was so focused and undeterred by all the crazy things happening around her. And so um, I would say that I got. I, I you know Kami, I made the role hers almost straight away um and I remember I told I told um our casting director Amy Renee I told uh, uh, my producing partner Hanu Aoki I was like she is the one and um and and those days on the set were magical and I as I said she has such a bright future I'm so excited for her
0: Now a question for you Jasmine did you film after Kemiya or Vice versa, did you have to try and adopt some mannerisms or anything to have that continuity come through?
1: You know, she shot, like, partway through filming, but I was on set. I was on set um, when she was filming to observe, and, like, so we could kind of communicate and have some similar stuff. But most of that was just natural. It kind of just happens that we had a
0: lot of the same
1: little quirks and stuff magic of filmmaking
0: i guess because watching it's a very seamless flow so it's a testament to you jasmine and to camille and to you alex that you don't feel like you're looking at two different people that seamlessness is there that you're just looking at an older version of this child thank you and That's something and I'm sure both of you have seen this in films before when we have a a younger version of an older self and it's like, no, not buying it doesn't 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 cut it. But here it just is so it it is totally seamless. And there is not a minute you don't believe that this adult Alexis was not this little girl. Uh, suffering multiple traumas, and then finding joy. Uh, which is that's one of the the strangest elements. This that really, it kind of hits you like a knife in this film, is the joy that you see, and that you see being felt uh, through this violence. And I think it's a testament to your cinematographer, to Daphne. To your, your, oh, she's the best. Uh, it, you know, the she visuals, is. the visuals are so fabulous. They're very rich, but you keep this from a t- visually uh, visual tonal bandwidth. You keep this very light but full bodied. You never make your visuals dark. We let the darkness stay within Alexis, and I found that really striking. You don't take us into the dark pitfalls, um, visual tropes that we're so used to seeing. And that
3: was an inter- That was that was the collaboration um, that I was hoping for when I um, got to meet Daphne, and um, and we got to discuss. She had in her past work, she had great example of using color and light um, in situations, mm-hmm. and um, and so. Um, that's what attracted me to her work. And uh, when we sat down, we, we really genuinely had an understanding of, of how we wanted the scenes to be to feel again like an artistic high, with um, as well the challenge of synesthesia and rend- as a sort of palpable uh, rendition of inspiration in that artistic high. And so with Daphne, we created this, um, this in situation uh, lighting dynamic. That we could then lay the, the the digital synesthesia on top and have a, a sense of depth um, to it, mm-hmm. and um, and and it's uh, and it naturally it brightens and makes the whole thing quite vivid, and we um, and and we that's what we wanted to go for. Um, had we hidden Alexei's work in the shadows, I feel that we would have we would have maybe. Kind of made her mo- much more of a of a of an intended predator. Mm-hmm. Whereas here we we wanted the artist in full bloom.
0: Well, we certainly get that, and I'm curious for you, Jasmine, the production design, especially of Alexis's RV, is so specific, and Alex and the use of all of the sound mixers and the sound equipment. You know, how did this help you and inform you? And how, and you know, how adept did you get at playing with all those knobs and gizmos on all the mixers? (laughs)
1: Yeah. uh, I love setting, I love like submersing myself into um, the set deck and the world of the projects that I'm on. So the details put into the RV, I don't know how much you notice, but when we're inside, man, there's so many (sighs) old little trinkets and photos of things on the wall and different chords and musical equipment. And that was so informative for me of who Alexis was, and just really like holding pieces in my hand and smelling the smell of the RV. And a lot of time in that space helped a lot. As far as all of the gadgets and stuff, the ceremony, I did actually learn to play. <clears throat> I oh. went and had a little ceremony coaching and, Practice and it's really fun. That is a really fun, weird instrument to play. Um, the other stuff, you know, I was maybe acting a little bit. I'm not necessarily great at being a sound engineer, but I did my best.
0: Well, I it comes across beautifully, and here again, a lot of that is also due to the way Daphne is was framing you um, yeah. within the shots. And you're very adept with a soldering iron and solder. I'll give you that. That's, that, <laughs> thank that you. that's very important. As somebody whose father was a television engineer and I got a soldering iron for my 12th birthday, I appreciate those little touches like that. And <laughs> you're a pro. <laughs> you're a pro. Well, thank you. <laughs> you know, really stand out, not giving anything away. No spoilers here. Um... I want everybody to know that we're not giving spoilers away here. But guys, I'm thinking I'm watching the final act, the final seven, eight minutes, and all I'm thinking is Jasmine Betty Davis at the end. Whatever happened to Baby Jane. My God. Alex, you had to oh you had to have been influenced by Altman here.
3: I, I funny enough, I wasn't, and, it, it, wow. and it's, it's very interesting because because I've now heard it since since the premiere, and I'm I'm I, I am first of all I think that that's awesome, <laughs> but but um, yeah. I feel like uh, like I absolutely need to go and revisit that.
0: <laughs> oh my god! But Jasmine, I'm watching you, and immediately in that third act. We get to the climactic scenes and I'm all I'm thinking is, oh my God, Betty Davis. That is oh, the wow. that is what ju- the first thing that jumped into my mind. And then as we wa- insane. Thank as, you. as we watch the scene play out, I'm going, Oh my God, Alex had to he had to have been influenced by Altman. So I am utterly shocked to find out that you weren't.
3: Um, no, it's it's funny. That scene is perhaps the one that that, that because it came came to me as a dream. Um, the, many of the other scenes have um, various references that that we could uh, go through in a longer conversation. But the, but that final scene came to me as a dream, um, or maybe a nightmare. Uh, however, <laughs> it's uh, described. But uh, but um, without really giving anything away, um, I woke up with the vivid image, and I scribbled it down, and I sent it to uh, to uh, my team uh, from Hanu to also Robert Bravo, my special effects guys, and and he just and I, and and, uh, and and I felt I felt it was it was um, it was the right way to go, um, and uh, and I know and I know that it's it's going to be an emotional roller coaster for the audience because. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a it's a scene that is inherently divisive, and um, you know I remember, for example, when I met James uh, Jagger for the first time, and and, I, and he was running me through his thoughts on the script. He told me that, that the ending uh, angered him, <laughs> and I wow. was like, a, in a good way, in a very good way. So I'm I feel that this scene is something that really um, that really will um, live on and hopefully stay on with the audience. Um, and um, and again, in the perspective of an artistic journey, um, will will give a, as much satisfaction and frustration as as the um, artistic journey is a very sort of neurotically ambivalent process.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm curious for you, Jasmine. How did you go about? Because this isn't just about Alexis. Along for the ride is her bestie and love interest, uh, Marie, uh, Lily Simmons. The two of you have an incredible chemistry. And then we bring James Jagger into the mix uh, as Marie's other significant other, Duke. I'm curious about developing... The, the dynamic the chemistry amongst the three of you and most specifically be, that you and lily had did you get a lot of rehearsal time we are talking in indie film we know rehearsal doesn't normally <laughs> come into the vocab- into the discussion but i'm curious about you know, developing that
1: no there wasn't we didn't rehearse lily and i just naturally have amazing chemistry and just like you know we all had dinner um a couple weeks before shooting and at that first dinner with the three of us and Alex, we all just got on so well and uh, were laughing, and immediately had this beautiful connection. So we were just really lucky there that we didn't have to
0: develop it
1: at all; it was just there. Uh,
0: it, it just, it is effortless, and it feels like you've known, you. it feels like you've known each other forever. Um,
1: it felt like that to us too. We were like, "What? How do I? Did I know you in a past life? This is crazy."
0: Well, and, and considering what Alexis, you know, the friendship and the relationship they have and, you know, leading up to that third act, you know, you have to have that kind of chemistry in order for that third mm-hmm. act to work. You really do. Uh, otherwise, yeah. it, it, it
3: definitely helped me. It, uh, it definitely helped me.
0: You know, this is this is your feature debut. um Alex uh, you did your documentary 808 you did your short conductor but this is your feature directorial debut and I'm curious how beneficial is it to you especially with a story like this a script like this to have actors that have that seamless effortless connection because this film is all about connection be it synapses reconnecting and being stimulated uh, via sensory pathways, be it the connection between murder, uh, music masterpieces, artistry, and friendship, how beneficial is that to you as a director to have this effortlessness with your among your cast?
3: I mean, it's it's priceless because um, I. You know, I, I've been a producer for 17 years, but walking on a set um, as a director, first as a, for, for my short conductor, was one challenge to just kind of prove me, I proved to myself I could do it. But then arriving on set for a feature with a sort of longer commitment was a rather daunting moment. And when you sit down with talented actors who not only have read and enjoyed your script, but will are willing to give their voice and personas to embody those characters. That was, that was extremely exciting for me. And, um, and, and I have to say, working with Jasmine, our partnership, our bond, um, was instant. Uh, the first time I, m- I met her, I was very nervous. Um, I, uh, again, because I, I just wanted her to, to uh, believe uh, that I could also deliver this story. And uh, I can tell you, at the end of our first meeting, um, I I was so excited about our our potential partnership, and also I felt I had met Alexis. So my head was, you know, focused on on shooting, and, you know, and throughout our collaboration with all three was also, because I'm not a native uh, English speaker, I, you know, we worked on adapting um, the lines to tell what I wanted them to say, but to feel natural with them and they really gave me the time and the and the commitment to do that with me and, and that really shows on screen as you as you see those dialogues that feel you know natural for all mm-hmm. of them and um, so I'm extremely grateful I feel extremely lucky and um, and you know when you at your at your um, featured uh, directoral debut being entrusted by such uh, incredible actors was, invigorating and also they would never let me get away with anything that would let my characters down and that mm-hmm. was very good you know sort of uh, dynamic to work from
0: now jasmine you've worked with you quite a few different kinds of directors already at this stage of your career what mm-hmm. what what was it like working with alex a first-time feature director with a script like this that is very visually dependent, emotionally dependent, and musically dependent. Uh, in to inform your character. You know, we had a lot of fun. We
1: we had a lot of fun. We um, working with Alex was. I appreciated how collaborative he was. That like he said, we were able to give our thoughts on the dialogue and the script and. We were really collaborative when it came to blocking. You know, there are certain directors who show up and they're like, stand here, stand here, hit this mark here, hit this mark here, which is fine. That is a very technical way of working. Um, It's not my preferred way of working. And with Alex, we would fill out the scene. We'd run it a few times, try different things. And before we were all happy and then we'd lock it in. Mm. And, you know, I immediately trust someone who trusts women and, Alex made sure that this, not just the cast but the crew was incredibly female and was very diverse in every meaning of the word. And so that gave me a sense of confidence and peace
0: and um, trust in him that I think paid off for all of us in the end. <laughs> and of course now you go from a film like Sound of Violence into Scream. A reboot mm-hmm. scream. Are, are we seeing a pattern a, a pattern here of, <laughs> of you know what piques your curiosity? Yeah, perhaps does <laughs> seem like I'm very
1: interested in um, horror at the moment. <laughs> and, uh, we'll see what comes
0: next. So let me ask you, Jasmine, um, what did you learn about yourself as an actor? from making Sound of Violence that you can now take forward into future work, into creating future characters?
1: Oh, I love that question. Thank you. No one's asked me that. You know, what I learned about myself as an actor, I have uh, stamina. You know, doing an (laughs) indie film like this, I think we shot it in 21 days, 23 days. It was very fast. A lot of work, a lot of intense, emotional, physical, psychological scenes, um, and I was so happy. I really loved the challenge of having to do so much work and, um, and how intense it was, and it just showed me that I, I can do it, and I'm, I'm in the right field, <laughs> and I would love to have more opportunities to do more work like this, more challenging Um, intense,
0: fun work. Well, anybody that sees you in Sound of Violence, they should be throwing scripts at you. Let me tell you. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And, and let me ask you, Alex, your feature directorial debut, what did you learn about yourself as a writer director that you can now take forward into what I hope will be more feature films?
3: I, um, First, first of all, I learned that I could do it. And, um, and that was, um, you know, I guess that's the number one purpose of, of a feature debut. Um, I also learned uh, from, you know, things that in hindsight, you know, we could do better. I've, I, there, there, there is a learning curve still ahead. Um, I, I learned as well how far I could push it. In terms of um, of uh, my relationship with the genre and how I could, you know, really kind of try to 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 live a sort of artistic high myself with with the creativity that uh, that uh, this story um, allowed me to to to, to play with. Um, but also, it, it excited me as well. Um, what I'm working on right now is something rather different, um, not as uh, gore and um, and what I learned about the character's journey and character development will be extremely valuable uh, going forward. So you know as somebody who I never went to film school I've, I've, I've owned and run a production company since 2004 so I learned on the field and um, and uh, but as storytelling and especially through documentary, I learned quite a bit of the craft
2: mm-hmm. but
3: now with this feeling of a new beginning, I'm uh, I'm also, very excited about what I learned from this movie and how I take it forward as far as character development
0: oh well, both of you congratulations on a job so well done everybody Thank can you. see sound of violence come may twenty first that this is so exciting um I can't wait I know I'll be watching it again because it Thank is. You. Oh. <laughs> It is so visually rich in performance, in visuals, and in sound um, that in order to to really appreciate everything, you want more than one viewing of this film. Uh, and I can't wait to see what comes from both of you. And I hope both of you will come back on the show again in the future. Oh, I would love to. I hope thank so you so for too. having us. Oh, thank you both so, so much. Bye-bye. Thank you
3: for having us. Take care.
0: Bye. And that was Alex Neuer, writer-director, Jasmine Savoy-Brown, star of Sound of Violence. Um, Seriously, Um, coming out of South By, world premiere. I think the one film that I loved more than this, Jacob's Ladder, or Jacob's Wife. Rather, with Barbara Crampton uh, Crampton and Larry Fessenden. And actually, I'll be talking to Barbara and hopefully Larry very, very soon. Uh, so I'll be bringing those to you uh, down the road. But yeah, m- mark your calendars. May 21, Sound of Violence. It is a must-see film for 2021. Let me tell you. Okay, now, can we back up? Now we're going to go back and we're going to wrap up. Uh, my conversation with Paolo Pilati on Last Call. Can we back it up just a bit? Like to where I asked him his last question, Pam? If I were looking at it, I know exactly where it is because I can tell on the vocal spike. Um, <laughs> I'm loud, he's soft. Do you Daddy, see? Good morning, how are you? No, now no, you're back to the I'm very beginning. New- Ah, uh, okay. This may not work, people. Question for you, Paula, because oh. I know Priscilla has to get to oh, movie uh, with other people. Good. But I've gotta ask you, your first feature, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker, as a director in making Last Call that you can now take forward into future projects?
2: Man, that is a uh that's a beast! Oh my God, everything, right? I mean, um, I had worked on, you know, maybe a dozen projects, but never my own feature. But, you know, this is my directorial feature debut, yep. and I've worked with some great actors, but not to this level. And, I mean, when I tell you, um, and I just, I just had tweeted about this because we were posting something about Bruce Dern, in particular, and my cast was tremendous, but. Um, Bruce in particular, man, like, oh, my God, he's the most generous actor. Um, I get goosebumps just talking about him. I learned more in two days with him, both on set and in his trailer, than I've learned in 20 years of storytelling, you know? And so I am so – I feel so strong. I feel so creatively strong, stronger, you know, now. It's like working out at the gym or whatever, and then you don't see results. You don't see results, and then one day – the pull-ups become easier, or something becomes easier. You when you look in the mirror, and you're like, "All right, I can, I can, I can see it now." For me, um, I always had confidence in my abilities. I'm a, I'm a pretty good storyteller, but you don't. Filmmaking is a, an elite sport, right? It's, it's a not, It's, it's a, it's a rich man's game. So mm-hmm. you don't get to pra- practice. You don't get to practice that often, right? And so it was it, in a way, it was a quick baptism by fire, you know. That okay, I belong here, right? Like I can, I can, I can handle myself. Um, I'm good in a room. I'm a very good writer. Um, I could sell, I could sell people all my projects pretty well. But there's always that well. Well, how would he handle, you know, an a-lister or whatever? Can he do that? So for me, that was a hurdle that was, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't have mattered to me. I didn't need names in this film. You know, I just needed good actors. But but moving forward having that, that confidence that um you know, that you could that you could tell stories with some of the best and some of the greatest. Like Bruce Dern legends, literal legends, um, is a real confidence booster. Not not to mention like the literal encyclopedia that I have now of, of little trips and and just those, um you know, things that, that uh that you can pull out when you need to and when inevitably the going and gets rough on you know, on set or or just, you know, you're up against it or You know whatever so uh you know it's hard to pinpoint one thing but my god it was a true masterclass across the board and uh you know one last thing i'll say you know really lucky too and i gotta start with jeremy and karen because they're just they're just such professionals right Mm -hmm. and so you never know and you know this is a low budget indie you don't know um who, who might be who might mail it in or you know the crew is just taking it because they're just still they got time, you know. They're they're down and they're like, all right, I go work on this for three weeks. But but from the first take, Jeremy was my first take. Like he set a tone that he was like, all right, I'm not I'm not fucking around and um and I won't neither are you. And so he he helped me. I can't thank him enough and really the whole cast for helping me set a tone that because I'm a nobody, right? And so I had never worked with any of the crew before either. So I had no I had no I had no shorthand with them. They didn't know what kind of filmmaker I was, what kind of person I was, even. And so, you know, there's a lot that there's a lot of that because it could have gone the other way, right? Um, you know, he could have said, "I'm not getting out of my trailer," or whatever, or it could have just been difficult, or or any of them for that matter. And they bought in, and um, that's a real. Beauty. That's a, there, there's, a, there's a confidence that you get when someone else has confidence to drop their ego at the door. And and do it for especially in an ensemble, right? Mm-hmm. But these guys know what they, they got. They, it was it was so beneficial to me to not have to explain that because I I'm cut from that ilk. I'm a dude. Look, uh, we all have egos, but you have to if we're gonna do if we're gonna do our best work, you have to leave it outside so that we can play in the sandbox. And and those guys those guys you didn't tell them that they just they got they 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 know the best work only comes from those environments. So. They helped me create that that place, and uh, yeah, I was just it was it's you know I'm forever grateful, but but I'm taking that with me for sure. Taking all those little those little tricks and, <laughs> and stuff you just can't learn in a book, you know stuff you just can't learn. That's and it. You know, there's only so much you can learn, You have to learn all that. And you know so I was fortunate to have you know a, a lot of um, really great. Uh, teachers in a lot of ways on set right through the
0: cast, so. mm. well I sincerely hope that at some point in the future you take us back down the shore <laughs> we don't have enough films well, down the shore
2: yeah yeah we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see we'll see, what, um, you know, we'll see what the future holds with all of that but I'm
0: open to it for sure oh Paulo thank you so much this has been a great thank way to, to to wrap up the week on a Friday. Yeah, my pleasure. Oh. My
2: pleasure. Anything else you need, uh, feel free, or you out the the or just let me know. I'm happy to provide additional details
0: to you. And that was Paolo Pilati talking about Last Call. And again, it's a lot of fun. Um, and it does, ex- it explores some themes that do plague some of, some of the older cities in the United States. But it is. It is very Philly-centric, Jersey Shore-centric. And, hey, if you need some more Jersey Shore right now, as the summer months start, as you're waiting for the summer months to head down the shore, um, check out, it's an older film, Everything for a Reason. It is by ri- it is written and directed by Vlaz Parlopanides, produced by Charlie, and Charlie is one of the actors in it. Shot totally down the Jersey Shore and in Tom's River. And it's available free on YouTube. It is the very first film that they ever did. You know them now as the writers and creators and producers of the smash Netflix uh, anime series, Blood of Zeus. And also as the screenwriters of Immortals and quite a few other things. And for all of you Philly lovers out there, we're going to go back to Philly in a couple weeks um, with director Ricky Staub talking about Concrete Cowboy starring Idris Elba. Um, So I'm embargoed on that film and I can't tell you about it yet and it's killing me. But uh, suffice it to say, if you want to find out a little bit about Concrete Cowboy before the film is available or before we can talk about it, get the book. It's, based, it's adapted from a book uh, called Ghetto Cowboy by G. Neri, uh, N-E-R-I. And uh, if you live in Philly, I'm sure you already know about North Philadelphia and the Cowboys and Fletcher Street Stables. So we'll be talking about that in the future. Well, that is all the time we have today, of course, we ran over. Be on the lookout. Sound of violence. Last call. Available now. And then on DVD on March the, what is it, March the 29th, I believe it is. Yes. So, until next week, when we've got a filmmaker from Ireland joining us from Ireland. Until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.